Nice. And it's your boys, Roshan Gomez and Jeremy Lim. What's up? And today we are joined by the handsome, uh, kind, brilliant, magnificent, bald, Mr. Aaron Matthew. What's up? What's up? <laughs> uh, okay, two things. First thing is, um, this is not your first time to Rumah Roy. We actually did do an episode uh, which was supposed to be number two, I mm. think. And due to my own negligence and due or some to might say charm <laughs> my uh, <laughs> personality quirks uh, I so happened to delete that recording of course that has caused much um, controversy the conspiracies are saying that the things that were said in that episode was so controversial that it we uh, threw it away we deleted it you some mean the audio editor <laughs> <laughs> she thought I call it Roygate <laughs> yes the Roygate scandal the rumor Roygate scandal where uh, the 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 content the was too, so too controversial that we had to get rid of it. The last episode, yeah, mm. well, interesting. But we we got you back. We got you, you back to silence the, the 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 contra the contra what the do you conspiracy call? theorists. Yeah, yeah, I don't the know. conspiracy theorists. Yeah, um, yeah. So thank you for coming on yeah, again. Absolutely. Uh, we hope to recreate some of that that conversation <laughs> that we had because it was a good conversation. Yeah. And uh, second thing, you're bald. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> what happened there? Um, I mean, is that you're, I mean, you're not balding. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You, you consciously. There would be a bit of a cause of concern. But <laughs> at that rate of <laughs> your bald, definitely. <laughs> so actually, I shaved my head about two, three weeks ago, uh, and yeah, one of my colleagues has cancer. Uh, so a couple of us decide to shave our heads just to support her, and she's mm. been with my school for a long time since the beginning. And she's like in her 40s, I think. And yeah, so she has cancer and she just had a treatment. So yeah, we decided, to, a couple of us decided to like just support her. And it's really, really good because she's an amazing, wonderful woman. And I think it's good that she knows that we're all there for her. And it's hard, I think, especially for a woman to lose her hair. I mean, especially when you go through uh, treatment like chemo and all that. Mm. You get, you're tired, you're sick, and now also you lose your hair. So which is something we want to do to show our support for her. So how many of you have? Um, I think about... 15, I think. 15 wow. Others, yeah. wow. That's pretty cool, man. That's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, because I've seen Aaron before this. And so, we've gone out. Uh, his birthday, we went out for dinner. And everybody would ask him, hey, dude, you know, like, they'll say, hey, you look so good, man. You know, you, oh, you ball. And then you're like, why you went ball? And then he would tell the story. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I see. <laughs> it's not much of an upper. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get really solemn really quick. A really great party, guys. <laughs> but you do look good ball, though. Thank you, thank you. I've, I've been told, like, I have a really good shape. No, but you, you've been ball before, right? I you have, shave, you've, have, yeah, that was for NS. NS, yeah, that was the first time. Oh. Yeah, um, and maybe it would be beneficial to kind of explain uh, how we know each other. Yeah. So I know Aaron from church. Mm-hmm. I've known you for what? 13 years. 13 years. Yeah. 13 years. One of my closest, closest friends, dearest friends. Um, and after SPM, you did your A-levels in mm-hmm. Tar College. Tar College. And then Jeremy, you did your A-levels in Tar College. Correct. Now, I remember... Y'all can correct me if I'm wrong. You can tell your version, no problem. I called Aaron. I said, Aaron, there's this really cool guy, Jeremy. He's a nice dude. Really interesting dude. Go and meet him. Find him. I think I gave Jeremy's number to you. I think so. I can't really remember that point. 
I texted you or I called you, Jeremy. Yep. I said, go find Aiden. I also very, remember it, yeah. <laughs> Very cool guy. Nice guy. Find him. Become friends with him. I think you already enjoy his uh, uh, company. Few months after that, I get a call from Aiden. Hey, bro. You won't believe it. Lah. Do you know this guy named Jeremy? Eh? <laughs> I met him through debate. He's super nice, you know. I'm like, dude, that was the guy I was talking to you about from day one. Okay? And you all met organically and then only realized that my recommendation was actually valid. I completely forgot about it. Of course you did, Jeremy. I made it to debate <laughs> club. It's a deep hurt in my heart that I've been carrying on. And that's why you tell the story with such passion yes. every time. <laughs> I take seriously the slight to my... <laughs> I like to think that your suggestion was so good, it just kind of like happened so naturally. You know, yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, like, a, like, I'm, like I said, I'm the Nostradamus of our time. <laughs> not willing to give you that just So you, you, you guys met in debate club, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all yeah. were not in A-level. I mean, you both were doing A-levels, but yeah. Yeah, y'all, do yeah. y'all have uh, classes together or? Um, so actually, okay. So what I remember meeting Jeremy was actually we both on debate club. We started the first sem, I think. Yeah, yeah. first sem. One debate club. We were debate club for about two, three semesters. I can't remember the last yeah, semester. The whole, I was yeah. there the whole duration. Yeah, yeah. I think all of them were there the yeah, whole duration, yeah. right? But actually, we only, me and Jeremy only got close. And I still remember this. This is a good story as well. I still remember like... Um, we were studying for our A-levels A2 and we were going to the library a lot. Like I used to go to the library every day. Uh, yeah. So I was staying on campus and Jeremy was, was close to living it back home. So Jeremy used to come uh, every day to the library evening to about night. And the funny thing is me and Jeremy were in debate club but we never, we didn't talk a lot. Like we did like debate stuff but never like, really talk a lot. But I remember so randomly that when we were studying for our A2, the, our final exams, I would be in the library and I was studying and I would study in like the third floor. Jeremy was in the second floor. And every time I walked down, I'd see Jeremy. And I and just randomly one day, I was like, hey, Jeremy, you want to go get that? Just, just sit down, have a drink, chit-chat. Yeah, sure. So we went outside, sat outside. There was a vending machine there. Had a drink and chit-chat. And we did like second time, third time, fourth. And I realized, man, I really like talking to Jeremy. <laughs> we have really good conversations. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, let's keep doing this. So we've been having conversations for yeah. about what, nine years already now. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it's never ended. It's yeah. been that long. Like, damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but Jeremy is the most, one of the most chillest guys ever. But yeah. yet, I feel like he's a bit of a, like a deer. Like, if anybody <laughs> would have come up, like, hey, bro, you want to hang out? Sure, why not? <laughs> Maybe some guys you should say, you should say no to. I like, have, we, I've, Okay, I don't know if I've said no to everybody, yet, anybody yet. <laughs> we'll see if that happens. Yeah, that's very cool. So, it was, I mean, interesting um, happens chance, you know, interesting way, uh, interesting how things turned out. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why we got you so early on to the second episode was because um, there was a big discussion going on about refugees and you're a, a, a ref- you, you teach refugees mm-hmm. in a, yep. a school called Dignity. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to get you on and we wanted to get um, your opinion because we thought that it would be best to talk to someone who's who has a background, who's talking um, to refugees mm-hmm. um, and who kind of knows... Because you don't only teach kids, but you're also connected to the community because yeah. you're also interacting with the parents um, and you know things of that order. Yeah, yeah. So that was the reason why we got you so early on. And the conversation is still uh, relevant now. It's still going on. And uh, so maybe to start things off, you could like tell us how you got into the line that you're in now. Right, right. So, I mean, I did my Bachelor of Psychology. Mm. and um, Where? 
Help University. Again, Help University. Samantha Ho, your alum was here. <laughs> and now we have a second alum. So please sponsor. <laughs> we'll take anything. Cameras, mics, anything. That a was, table. Re- realize that that was a pointed question. I knew which college. <laughs> I just wanted to plant help there. Okay. I don't know if this helps your case. Too. I really don't. So you, you did your bachelor's in psychology. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so during my, la- my last year, I started to really think about what I want to do. Uh, you know, when I started working, and I realized like, I really enjoy teaching. Like I've been teaching since I was um, like after form five, you know, Tandy school, tuition, even did like sometimes free tuition for like poor kids around my neighborhood. And I, I really want to teach and I want to do that like full time. And then, so in my last one, two semester, I like, looking for places to teach, looking for places to work. And then as I was looking for schools, I realized that, okay, if I could do anything, what would I do? Because as I was looking for places, I got one or two offers. And I thought, okay, before I take, take this, what I really want to do, if I could do anything. I realized, actually, I really want to teach the poor. Like, I want, because I believe that they deserve, like, the best kind of education. Because they're already so behind, and they're already struggling. So, literally, and a lot of people ask me this question, how did I come to know the school that I'm working at now? And I was like, I just googled schools for the poor, KL. And the first result was this school. And I applied to it, got a call, went for interviews, I got the job. And it's a good school. Mm-hmm. It's a good school. Like when Obama came to uh, visit Malaysia, mm. that was the only school he visited. Okay. Dignity. Yep. I mean, so it's legit. Because you know, like before they come, the US Embassy has to do research and mm. you know, they have to find places that kind of like are all of a certain platform and yeah. aligned with their values in a specific way. So, I mean, that's a testament to Dignity. Dignity yeah. does a <laughs> lot of good work. I mean, they are really, uh, because I follow them on social media mm-hmm. and I've met, I've given like one talk. Yeah. So I've gone to their um, one of the buildings where they they have um, they have um, their their like classes, workshops classes, and classes workshop, and all yeah. that. Yeah, um, I did a talk on racism, <laughs> <laughs> a topic that comes up here quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was really interesting though talking to um, Myanmar, Pakistani, yeah. uh, Somalian. African, Somalian kids about racism. It was very interesting, um, and so they. Their setup is really good um, and they're doing really good work. It's like quality education, um, quality um, programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's how you got into it. Yeah, You've been there for how many years? Uh, this is my fourth year. So now four years mm-hmm. into this. Yeah. Um, is, it as, is it as rosy as you thought it would be? Definitely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. Um, is it still rewarding? Yes. Absolutely. Um, but even that has been like up and down. Yeah. Okay. Maybe like what are the things, maybe what are the things that you've learned? What are the things that surprised you? Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe start with what you expected walking in, right? Because it is a high profile. Like you said, it has a pretty high profile. Mm-hmm. I guess why I'm you asking know? this is because I think all of us, when we are young, we have a certain dream or mm-hmm. a certain perception of what we think life is going to be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us think we can change the world. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, life replies very quickly and very strongly, no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and there's kind of like a existential, cri- existential crisis that every person has to go through. You know, maybe, Jeremy, I don't know about your line. Uh, because the project is like a hundred year timeline, you know, you know that you're not achieving it when you never get to see what you achieve. Yeah. So like, if you, if you come to that realization, then maybe you'd be a bit more accepting about the way the world is. Yeah, I mean, ultimately that's, 
one of the ways that you deal with it. You just accept the world as is and you just do what you can. Yeah. But okay, for you, Aaron, going into it, you have all, I mean, I mean you you did something that a lot of people wouldn't do. Yeah. Um, you took a really unconventional road, you, very idealistic. Did life hit you back? You know, what did you <laughs> learn? You know, what, what, what did you find out was like, yeah, that's what I expected. What was like, no, that's not what I expected. Do you mean more in terms of like my own personal life or like as a teacher working in the school? I mean, yeah, both maybe overall. Mm-hmm. Whichever like stands out for you. Um, I think, yeah, I think one of the things is that working in this line, um, it's really challenged me in terms of like where I see myself like in terms of career or in terms of uh, growing because um, doing this career, it is really challenging and um like I'm, I'm really, I really enjoy what I do, and that's why I continue to do it. But even then, even like satisfaction and enjoyment, because a lot of people are like, "Oh, you know, it's a challenging job. You must really, really enjoy it." But the reality is not. That's not how it is every day. Because no matter what you do, and I, I think no matter how much you enjoy something, you're not going to enjoy it every single day. You mm. know? And there are going to be times in every profession where you're doing like really tedious work mm. that you don't want to do, and yeah. it's. Like we see the end product and we evaluate a profession based on the end product, but we don't look at everything that goes, like everybody wants to be an author, but then you mm-hmm. don't see the daily grind of writing five pages a day for like two years and revisiting your drafts. And, you know, we all want that end product. Right. Mm. You know, is that something you're talking about? Like, you know, that daily grind, it was maybe surprising to you. Yeah, yeah. In in the sense that like, like I said, like, like not, like a lot of days are like, tough or challenging because you're working I'm working with students that uh, are some, some of them are already very behind like I so the, some, the class that I teach I teach two classes this year uh, one are English language learners so these are students who are 16, 17 15, 16, 17 but their English language is at a preschool level or, mm-hmm. or below I have some students who can only speak a few words of English and I'm teaching them and that's really really hard because um, you know to explain concepts and again, like you can do that with kids, like three, four years old, you know, A is for apple, B is for ball. But these kids are already 16, 17. So yeah. you can't treat them like kids, but their level is that of very, very young. Uh, so you have to find ways to engage them, to make it interesting, but at the same time, that suits their level. And that can be, and that is really, really challenging. Um, but I mean, for me at least, um, like even throughout the couple of four years, I've moved in the school, different departments. So I used to teach upper primary, and then I was teaching uh, upper secondary, that's 4.5. And then this year I've moved to an employability program in the school itself. Mm. And that journey also kind of highlights my own refinement of what I believe my purpose and calling is in life. Um, like initially I thought the younger kids, mainly because they needed a teacher at that place, but I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and I felt I learned a lot because when you're teaching younger kids, you have to know your basics, your foundations very well and how to manage them. And then I also moved to the older kids, form four, form five, also because not uh, things that are outside of my control. Again, the school was like, okay, we really need you to move there because we need a teacher there to teach English. But again, it just so happened to be that looking back, I'm like, yeah, that's actually what I wanted to go all along because I really enjoy teaching older teens. Like that's my passion and that's my strength, I believe. Um, so yeah, so I was in form four, form five for two years. But then at the end of at the end of the last year, my supervisor at that time was like, "Okay, um, would you where would you like to go next year? Uh, we're giving you a choice. We believe that you can do good work. Would you prefer to remain at upper secondary teaching this form four, form five? And it's more of academic, you know, because I teach English, but it's more academic English. 
or move to uh, employability program. And I knew for me, that's where I want to go. I really mm. want to help students have a bit more of life skills, understand themselves better. And so I moved to uh, employability. What does uh, employability program uh, entail? So uh, my department is called Dignity College. And so what we do is uh, students who want to um, who see themselves less academic, but more hands-on, uh, or even more towards customer service or more towards starting a business, this is the program for you. Um, so again, to the, uh, the other track, the upper secondary usually for people who want to go to like uh, IGCSE or do the uh, chemistry, biology, physics, and then they want to go on to um, and further their studies, that's their track. But for those who like, I want to be a hairdresser, I want to be a, uh, I want to work in food and beverage, this is the program for them. Mm-mm-mm. I mean, again, these are the, t- a testament to the, the quality or the vision of dignity because you very you very rarely hear schools such as this doing not just the academic but also this kind of like I mean these sorts of programs that increase the employability of um, and life skills of uh, refugees. I think there isn't even a public version of this technically. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, not for refugees, but I mean, there are for like... No, I think he, for, I think for, he means for, non-refugees for, for, for Malaysians. Yeah, technically. You know, you don't even have that. It's not really... There are, but nothing I would... I, and for what, to my knowledge, because you do have like vocational schools yeah. and you have all these like... And but, even... But I mean, the, those... Sorry to cut you off, but I mean, that's post high school. Right, right. I think within a high school... Sort of setting, yeah. Setting, it's, it's not really there. I mean, our version of that would be like pengakap and... <laughs> Or like your, all like the career counselor in your school telling you a bit about like, you know, giving you some career advice. But yeah. that's that's the extent of it. No one really exposes you to uh, things outside that. So I think it's it's pretty unique that you know, uh, especially a refugee school is doing this. Even our life skills subjects are shady. Kemana <laughs> kido, you know. No, but the thing is, like you, even that lah. Like on that topic. And I think a lot of things, and this is reflected in a lot of the uh, government or uh, public education. Theory wise, really good. Like if you look mm-hmm. at Kamari Hidop, like theory wise, like you get to learn woodwork, yep. you get to learn uh, home sewing. Like cooking, yeah. sewing, well, pipes, and some electronics as well. Yeah, yeah, electronics yeah. and plumbing, and these are really good. And and my school actually has these skills. Mm. So part of the uh, curriculum for uh, both the upper secondary as well as this employability program, mm. um, both of these have students taking uh, hairdressing, food and beverage, uh, sewing, woodwork, plumbing, electrical wiring, baking, uh, urban gardening. Mm. Uh, graphic design and coding. So we have about 10 skill classes. Nice. And actually, actually, even in the government school, they have that. But usually, it's the implementation. Yeah. That mm, is usually as usual. the actual carrying out of the classes. Like I remember like, my Kamani Hidop and it was, I mean, it was interesting, but it was more like, okay, here's the things to do. Just do it. Get it done. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we never really understood the principles. Of, we did woodworking projects. We did, yeah. But yeah. we never really understood like, Dude, the way we were woodworking is it's like just giving kids like, like you know, the saw and go crazy, you know, like we didn't understand the principles yeah, behind no. it. And I mean, to be fair, it's also because you have a class of like 40 yeah. kids. Mm. You know, how are you going to manage that? You just look to the guy next to you and see how he's doing it. And he probably, I don't know, God knows if he figured it out. The, <laughs> the saddest thing though, I think for all of us is the flute. <laughs> like we all got a flute. I mean the recorder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the recorder. Sorry, my bad. My bad. <laughs> Not even a flute. The recorder. We all got. I see. That's how much I used it. <laughs> I, I forgot what it's called. <laughs> we all got a recorder. Yeah. No one used it once. I've never. 
I never in all of my schooling, primary and secondary, never had a lesson where we used the recorder. We I mean, I had a record when, when I had a lesson like in primary school. I, I can't okay, remember. Maybe what I had it in primary, but I forgot. But I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. I really don't remember anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when you compare the education that provided in dignity and your own school experience, mm. do you see areas in government school education that's lacking? Not maybe not just the execution, but even the curriculum. Uh, what's what do you call the 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 approach of education? Uh, there's a word for philosophy. It. Yeah, the philosophy maybe. Yeah, because yeah. pedagogy is more of like the teaching techniques, oh, right? Okay. Like uh, your approach, like visual, auditory, kinesthetic, uh, how you flip classroom. Kinesthet- kinesthet- that's like when you start fires with the mind, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean. <laughs> I want that skill. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's, pretty sure some that's X-Men a stuff. Pretty sure that's a pyrotech, <laughs> <laughs> like a pyrokinetic or yeah. something like that. <laughs> pyrokinetic. <laughs> I'm just gonna take it that dignity is teaching their kids. You X-Men. went to a government school, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a testament to our education. <laughs> if only I had that recorder class one time, would have Everything would have changed. Uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, you were saying. Yeah. So I think. Uh, the right way is philosophy. Do you see a difference in philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so again, like if, if you read like the Malaysian educational blueprint, which is talking about to death, you would, and it, this is something that most teachers know this, or at least most teachers who try to be forward thinking and uh, up to date, they know this, that actually our educational blueprint is really good. Like even the f- approach, the philosophy, the uh, techniques or the plan, everything is really, really good. But I think very often, uh, there's so many other things that muddles it when it finally comes down to the actual on-the-ground implementation, that, yeah, it's not carried out very well. I would say, though, like, for example, comparing my own high school education, what was good about it was that, um, well, at least things like funding was a lot more stable because, obviously, it's funded by the government. Mm. So funding is more stable. Uh, even, like, physical buildings is more stable. Like, you have a place. They have a, I, I had a field. I had buildings. Uh, and you might think, oh, buildings, I mean, why is that a consideration? But when you're a non-profit and when a lot of um, your day-to-day operations depends on uh, pu- public donations, things like space is actually a huge thing mm. uh, because a lot of students want to come in, but that depends on how much space we have. So yeah, so things like um, teachers, um, salaries, uh, buildings, all that's really good. And I would say that even in my school, because again, government funded, that you know you have Teachers, okay. One person is head of English, one person head of maths. Yeah, sorry, your school is government funded? As in my high school, my secondary oh, school. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So my secondary school, you have head of maths, head of English. Yeah, yeah. But you don't have that luxury, even especially in my school, because again, we have limited resources. I mean, we have in, we've been operating for about 22 years. So we hmm. do have some uh, sponsors who've been with us for a long time. That's very helpful for us. But at the end of the day, we have to be really, really careful with how we use uh, whatever resources we have. So that means that a lot of times uh, teachers take up more than one role or a few roles. And and again, I know that that's also a reality in some government schools, especially rural areas. But yeah, at least my secondary school in the city, that's some good things. Not so good things are, at least for me in my school, what I see we do better is that every year we're always reviewing what we do. And because we are a bit of a flat hierarchy, like for example, like I'm the head of my of my department, me and another colleague. So, and we're given that autonomy to like, okay, if things are not going well, we can change direction, change uh, where we're doing things. 
and so we can adapt a lot faster. Mm. I imagining for schools in the government system, that's a lot harder. And of course, that's one of the criticisms like that. They're a bit more slower to adapt or change. I mean, that's something that I've actually been thinking about a lot lately. Um, in the sense that I realize that there's always been a lot of complaints in terms of our education, mm. um, the quality of education provided, and I wonder. How, so I used to think like. You know, your parents always say that education used to be so much better. And I realized that that was... Um, well, I think a part of it was because we were also getting a lot of missionaries coming in to teach. So I think the quality of education was a lot better because, I mean, that's what my parents uh, and, you know, people I know, that's what they say. So you were having people from first world countries uh, who were generally very passionate coming in to, to uh, teach. But... Now that it's a nationalized, we have a nationalized kind of um, approach to education, um, I wonder whether because of that, again, that top-down approach, uh, the quality is just, it, it, it would, there's no way for it to, to, you know, because there's no way for, when you apply a program across the board, um, you're not going to um, factor into like different, mm. um, different communities or, uh, different socio-economical backgrounds, you know, the geography of the place you're in. Like, the approach for a KL student and a Terengganu student would be different. Mm -hmm. But because we have a national approach to education, not a state approach to education, so we have a a plan that is for everyone, but it can't really cater for everyone. Right, right. Right? So I wonder how much of that... But then... So my thing is, like, I'm thinking, like, in that way, I would see why private education would be better. You know, because you have uh, schools that are able to... You know, again, like just comp by competing with each other would provide services that are better quality. But the I'm divided because then I think about the con. Because I don't like private schools now. Because what happens is they now divide according to their socio-economical background. Most of the time, they are one particular class. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, they are one particular race. That kind of mixture that we got in government schools, it, it's... It's gone. Mm -hmm. So my thing is like, it almost seems to be experience versus quality of education. Um, do you guys have any thoughts about that? Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I do. But I think there's a different there's a different narrative to that argument that, that's found in like, whenever they compare our education system to like other countries that prize teachers better. You know, your teachers are better selected and better filtered through the system. You know, they're better paid in society. Like, I think very interesting anecdote is that, you know, in different societies, teachers are a profession that people go after because it is a good profession in that sense. So here, I think the approach was different because we were a colonized country and needed to develop very quickly. Teachers were actually a really good way to have incomes move into these rural neighborhoods very fast. So it, it gave jobs to, you know, people who had, I guess back then, a high school education. I think I'm sure that's changed by now. Um, but yeah, I think the approach to hiring teachers was what really changed the landscape of mm -hmm. teaching when it came to Malaysia, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of that. Now the problem is you have a lot of individuals, citizens, becoming teachers, not because they're passionate about teaching, Correct. but because they view it as an easy job. Yeah. You know, it's just come in the morning, um, do your teaching, fill in whatever you need to fill in, write your reports, and you're done by two, three, mm -hmm. and you go back, right? And so you have a lot of ladies who basically plan to have a family, thinking like this is a good way for me to have like almost like a side income, while my main priority is my family. Mm -hmm. And what happens is 
they become teachers and realize that teaching is not easy. You need a particular skill set. These kids are devils, you know, <laughs> as all kids should be. Mm-hmm. You know, they have energy that you need to harness and it's difficult. Mm-hmm. It's difficult and you need a particular skill set. So I guess I agree with you. But that's the thing when you do anything like if I don't know when I'm it's wrong for me to say this. So the this. decentralization argument, mm. the state approach would fall apart because of smaller states, because mm. of states that don't have a lot of income. Mm. You'd have massive problems in those regards. The reason why that cannot be an option mm. is because the entire landmass of Malaysia is the equivalent to one US state. Mm. So in terms of in terms of income coming in, because there are economy of scales problems, right? No, but that's the thing. Like it almost seems like a cash money too, because it's you know it seems like in order. We can't. We have to sacrifice the quality. It almost seems, ah, I might be wrong. Ah. We have to sacrifice the quality of the education to meet the needs of the whole. And it's a difficult position to be in. Is that true? Is there a way? Do you think Iran there's a way for us to? I mean, I think that. Um, I mean, this is a tough question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think on the point of teachers, though, I do think that there are a lot of passionate teachers in Malaysia. So even if you look at some of the programs like Teach for Malaysia, uh, which is of course one of the most well-known uh, programs that seeks to get really talented, really talented, really capable young people into the education system, that that, that overwhelming response to that program. Like a lot of people apply to that program. A lot of people want to be involved in education in some way, and who are passionate want to help. Um, but again, like it's it's still, to be fair, I think a small segment of the larger population because even the TFM teachers that uh, go to government schools is still a very small percentage, a really, really small percentage of the overall uh, new teachers that come in every year into the system. Do you know about TFM? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm yeah. well aware of TFM. Maybe for the benefit of those who might not know, you could explain what TFM is all about. So Teach Malaysia is a uh, program that... Uh, it's, so it's a organization that is works with the Ministry of Education and they partner together to be able to recruit uh, talented young Malaysians between the ages of, uh, I think, 24 to 35. Uh, so fresh grads all the way even up to 35. Uh, and they do they come in and they have a, it's a two-year fellowship that they serve with the uh, government, in government schools. And so they usually serve in high-need schools. So these are schools which uh, maybe they have a lot of challenges in terms of academic performances or even behavior. And they get placed into schools around Malaysia. And um, and they work towards getting a postgraduate diploma in education. And what's interesting about this program is that uh, rather than do their one or two years or three years degree and then go into school, they do like a two-month uh, program, uh, like a kind of crash course to education. And then they get into the schools and start keep learning at the same time doing their postgraduate diploma. So yeah. Every week, I try and find one sneaky way to get our producer to like shout out our producer Jane Ao <laughs> and this week I thought I was stumped but even this week I've managed to found, find one because she's really Jane, scared over there Jane Ao's brother uh, <laughs> I almost wanted to say Benny Ao for some reason <laughs> Jane Ao's brother Bernard Ao was uh, is uh, alumni alumni of Teach for Malaysia he was where was he two years he went where mm. he went to Johor and I think he had a pretty good experience Yeah, yeah. and now he's kind of um I mean, he's working at NGO now, right? Yeah. But the reality is, though, that they do have a, quite a high turnover rate, and a lot of not a lot of the teachers stay mm. after those two years. Mm. And again, this is a testament to the culture of the schools. That a lot of these people who are really passionate, mm. really, really interested, they just don't continue after the two years. There's, uh, do you, do there's you, a different argument to that side of things because 
uh, in left-wing circles teach for America is criticized as just a way of padding your CV. I don't know how true people do that here. No, so I agree. Like, I think, sorry to cut you off, but I Go think ahead. that, yeah, definitely, there are some teachers who probably might be like, okay, I'm, and, and a lot of people, and this is reality, a lot of people are like, okay, I want to do charity work, NGO work, blah, 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 but like for two years, three years, then get to my actual job or what I see myself mm. in long term. To me, I think that's your choice because the re- at the end of the day, if you choose to dedicate two years, that's better than somebody who dedicates no years. But at the same time, I think also that people also need to keep keep thinking about it because if you're serving a particular group for two years and then you leave, that also has an impact on them. So I think in an ideal situation, an ideal world, um, we're able to cater more mm. so that people who want to make it or who are leaning towards making it a full-time career or want to continue to work with the underprivileged or uh, communities that are underserved can see to do it for a longer time. Yeah. And I think Teach for America or even Teach for UK um, is different when you compare to Teach for Malaysia because the culture is very different. Why? Like Asian culture, we don't really idolize um, charity. Um, we our What we would do is give money, financially support. But asking your children, for example, or encouraging them to work in a charitable organization where there's no um, hierarchical movement up for you, there's no prospects, it's not something that's encouraged. But when you talk about Western countries, especially America, they have these really... Um, you know, they have a very like um, doctors without borders kind of mentality. It's like something that's... Uh, altruism is put in a pedestal in America. I mean, that's why Thailand is so famous. You know, like if you ask Americans, they, everyone knows Thailand. Why? Because Tha- why, they don't know Malaysia, but they know Thailand. Why? Because Thailand has two of the, their favorite things, clubbing and temples. You know, it's like they have this like kind of like real interest with... Um, Spirituality, altruism, and things of that order. That so, might be a that might be a bit of a mischaracterization because Thailand appeared on the map because Vietnam vets went there on vacation when they were not on the front lines. So it might not be so much the spiritualism that is really landed. They just remember it as their grandpa went there on vacation before they went back to killing Viet Cong in the jungle. Thailand, Thailand. They were on the beaches of Thailand. I stand corrected, but I, I mean, for me, it, it, it makes sense why they would know Thailand. Lah. I mean, it, why, like, for them to travel, like, no one really goes to, okay, uh, Indonesia, favorite spot, Bali. Bali has positioned itself pretty well. Uh, but it's the same concept. It's, you get both, best of both worlds. You get to, you know, eat, pray, love. And you get to party at night. <laughs> I think he was describing a very specific kind of liberal, but okay. Okay, because <laughs> I think I've done like a little bit of traveling. And so I've met backpackers. Like I traveled um, in India once. And I am went like on a solo trip by myself. So I went to this random... As anyone who knows me, I don't plan anything. I'm really horrible in any sort of preparation. So basically it was... <laughs> it was I think one or two weeks of me trying to figure out like from one spot to one spot what I was <laughs> going to do <laughs> okay and so I would end up I end up in these random youth hostels and so I would meet a lot of backpackers and that's kind of their thing a lot of them they don't really know what they're doing so they will just travel mm. you know and try, they're trying to find themselves you rarely hear Asians do that 
you rarely no. hear. I think it, it, it again. I think it is demographic. Like I think urban, young, urban. Eat, pray, love, really? Yeah. You got. You have. Do you have any friends? I don't. Some of them. And but, but they many. may not do it to the extent of like quit their job and just <laughs> like you know. They they see take a weekend trip to Batu Caves. No, but it could be like <laughs> could be like a week or two backpacking. But a lot of again, a lot of young urban Malaysians, I think, are doing this solo backpacking one week, two week, kind of find myself, go out, see who I am. Uh, yeah, but again, like not at, not to the extent of uh, okay, quit my job and let's see where the wind takes me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah so, but I think even talk about education, I think that definitely uh, there is a different culture. Like what Jeremy was talking about in certain countries where teaching is prized. Mm. And I would assume even teaching like the underprivileged, you know, is seen as a good thing. Uh, I think teaching in general is actually, and I, again, I think if you go to more rural areas, I've actually heard or even yeah heard that teaching is actually on par with like being a doctor and lawyer. And that's not so much here in the city, mm. but in more rural areas, that is like, oh, wow, you're a doctor. Mm. And like even some people, for example, like if you see a doctor, you're like, oh, maybe so, doctor so-and-so. But nobody ever calls you, oh, teacher so-and-so. Like, the, per- the person oh, oh. out there, um, the person out there <laughs> who sees me on the street won't call me like, oh, teacher yeah. so-and-so. Yeah. But... Um, sorry, sorry, just to explain the, oh, oh, uh, Aaron's <laughs> mic just fell. So we're having that, a bit of that's technical. That's passion. That's, yeah. He was so passionate about it what he was speaking about. people. <laughs> <laughs> Literal <laughs> mic drop almost <laughs> happened. Okay, yeah, sorry, what were you well, saying? Yeah, no. but... Um, but you know, but that happens in slightly more rural areas where teachers are like, "Oh, you're a teacher," and again, I think with the older generation also, it's like, "Oh, wow, teacher," but not so much with the current generation because it's not seen as a lucrative career. Mm. So I think even again, like, the idea of teaching being a noble—if you think about it, like a noble profession—usually is counted as like, okay, a doctor, a lawyer, or things like that. Mm. But actually, teaching is part of that noble profession as well because it seeks to help others or to better society. Uh, but I think because of the lack of um, economic like returns that you can get now, yeah. I think most people are like, nah, that's not a choice for me. Um, so yeah, and I think, again, so that also speaks into people who join Program Teach for Malaysia. Uh, they want to help, they want to make a difference, but, uh, and again, valid concerns, like, okay, you know, when I get older, as I grow up in my, as I go in my career, I want to be able to afford certain things. I want to be able to buy a house, a car, or have a family. Val- valid concerns. Um, yeah. But I, I I, w- I could see there being a lot of defranchisement as well. I, I mean... What do you mean? As in, I think um, when you enter a government institution, uh, there is a specific uh, culture. I think when you're talking about government schools, I mean, we all are from government schools, so we mm-hmm. know, we kind of know how it runs. And I think, again, when you have so many people coming into it for the wrong reasons and they make up the majority of the staff, yeah. then it's almost like you're fighting a yeah. whole system. Like, yeah. So I think, sorry, so as, as I don't I think, so two reasons I think why people would leave uh, would be either economical reasons or dissatisfaction with the culture. And I think a lot of people also leave because they're like, you know, I really want to make a change. I want to make a difference. I really mm. want to be able to impact the children's lives mm. and do it in a way that I think is like uh, research-based or the most modern techniques or the most modern, the best ways of teaching. But they can't do that. So they might be stifled. Or, okay, you have to follow this, this, this. And you can't veer away from the norm. And so they are unsatisfied in the league. Can I add a third thing, which is I think the amount of paperwork, the bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's very surprising when I've heard like friends who have parents who are teachers, like the amount of paperwork. Because yeah. after teaching, they have got to do paperwork for hours upon hours after that. And again, I think um, it's because the quality of teachers are, are so low. 
and because they because it's so low, then they need to put in these kind of programs or plans for them to ensure that the quality is of a particular standard. So they have mm. to monitor their teachers, mm. you know. But if we had again, like what you said, if we invested in our, our the way we chose our teachers, in the be if we were more stricter, uh, if we pay them better, then we could trust them yeah. to do the job, yeah. and that would elevate. But of course, easier than said than done, lah. Yeah. Um. Okay. Great. I uh, uh, I guess another part about this. Actually, we should get Bernard out on. I mean, it'd be great to hear his experiences in Teach for Malaysia. Jay, now can you hook that up? <laughs> She'll try. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, another part, I guess, that you would want to get your insight is this whole refugee issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess this whole thing started. I, I mean, it's it, been in the news. It's just that now it's become back it, into focus. It became an issue because of MCO. Yeah. I mean, refugees have been around. Uh, okay, first things first. Uh, everyone has to, I guess, understand. Do you want water? I just looked in my cup and I'm like, I'm going to have a drink. Oh, it's empty. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 I think I have. Do you like tea? I'm good, man. Yeah, yeah, sure. Have some tea, man. Nice. Yeah. This tea is both tea, yeah? Bo. So, Bo, if you're listening, <laughs> yes. please not do. getting any <laughs> of these sponsorships <laughs> towards Rumah Roy Podcast. <laughs> uh, so, we have a new uh, videographer slash intern slash uh, groupie slash number one fan of Jeremy Lim, which is Sharon. And uh, I told Sharon before we started to make sure that she got a, a picture of the Bo label on my my thermos so that Bo would sponsor us. Yeah, so. Absolutely. Please, Bo. We'd be hungry out here. <laughs> Sounding increasingly <laughs> desperate every week. We're out here. We're one week from going bankrupt. <laughs> Please, bankrupt. Do not. Please do not bojo us. Ah, uh, here we go. Oh. Here we... This is like Terence told all over again. <laughs> Terence, Terence, oh, Terence okay. said that because we were joking... I just we, got there. <laughs> <laughs> when Terence did his joke, Jeremy did laugh as well. So... Darren's one was basically we were joking about how there was a ghost in the, the our sound system because he would go haywire. Mm. And then the joke was this was like a podcaster who could never podcast so he haunts <laughs> Mike. And then uh, Darren's was like oh we should call it a musical we should call it Dead Air because you know Dead Air. Uh, <laughs> nice. Nice. It's not my <laughs> joke. Why do I feel like I'm getting negative feedback with it? I thought it was funny though. Alright, anyway. I'm not going to endorse this. <laughs> okay, anyway, to, to set everything, I guess preface everything, basically, um, refugees have been in Malaysia for a long time now. I mean, they started coming in the 1990s. Uh, it's just in two, when the Rohingya crisis started. Mm-hmm. And we have a good track record with dealing with refugees. Basically, Malaysia became a, a kind of a pit stop uh, before, they get re- before refugees were resettled. We worked with the United Nations we worked with australia we worked with uh, developing uh, i mean first world countries to resettle refugees and that's why we have a big uh, un facility uh, in kl uh, interesting place uh, if you go there it's kind of um, because you worked at it before right yeah so what happened was before uh, when before you get called to the bar you have to do 9 months of chambering so it's like a housemanship and a part of that housemanship is doing legal aid and you get to choose a particular legal aid program. And the legal aid program that I chose was uh, UNHCR. Mm. Um, 
And I did, had no idea what it was. I just saw you and so I thought, okay, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Only to realize that they dealt with refugees. And I kind of had a pretty amazing experience. It was like a real eye-opener, uh, pretty mind-blowing. And so maybe we can talk about that as we go, go on. But basically, um, yeah. So we've had a good track record. Uh, then the Rohingya crisis happened, I think in 2000, I, I think 2014, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and we Somewhere had- Somewhere over the last five years, like, it's been getting worse. Yeah, so then we had like, I don't know, there was like what, three huge boats. I remember that. I remember the day in particular when, that, when it happened. And um, now we have thousands of uh, uh, Rohingyas here. But it's not only Rohingyas though. Uh, there are different communities. There's uh, Chin, Kaching, uh, what are the... Mon. I mean, Myanmar, usually the Zomi, Chin, Kachin, Mon, uh, and of course the Rohingyas as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, and then you have, of course, uh, Pakistani refugees, Somalian refugees, Sri Lankan refugees, uh, Middle Eastern refugees. Yeah. Yeah, so you have all sorts. Uh, of course, Rohingya is the most. Uh, mm. you know? So actually, we have a, a good track record, but I think um, the blowback I mean, pre-MCO, it was already simmering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people were getting upset because, I mean, our economy was not doing fantastically. People were upset about... I mean, there was that narrative of GST has kind of killed us. Um, you know, tolls were so expensive. I'm talking about the urban area. So there was a sentiment that we were struggling. We were suffering, even though our economy seemed to be on the rise. Um, and so people were like, why are so many refugees coming in? You know, and and... That rhetoric only um, sharpened, sharpened, deepened during the MCO because again, now we have a situation where we really our economy is in the dumps, but and on top of that, we have uh, the big bulk of our cases, our COVID nineteen cases were uh, from immigrants, mm. um, m- immigrants, migrants, um, and also our refugees. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of rhetoric that was probably unpleasant mm. you know a lot of like you should go back to where you came from a lot of um, a lot of rhetoric that seemed to categorize these communities of people as being a sort of um, in, like categorizing them as invaders or parasites or an infection that we needed to get rid of because that's what it felt like we had closed our borders but then they keep on coming mm. right then what are we going to do you were not, we didn't ask you to come here. We didn't want you to come here. We said no, but you didn't listen and you still came on. You, it's, you know, I understand why it can be an emotional uh, reaction, right? And so, what do you think? What, what, what has been your, I mean, I'm sure there are people who are of this view who have also engaged with you. Right. Ha- has that happened? Um. Yeah, R- rarely actually. Like I, I don't, I have not had a lot of like, interaction discussions with people who maybe disagree with uh, helping refugees, but yeah, once in a while, like rarely lah. And what what do they normally say? What is their? Yeah, so sometimes usually it's the fact that or oh, um refugees, uh, you know, we 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 refugees we should stop accepting refugees or refugees should be sent back because uh, a maybe because especially with the current COVID nineteen issue, like oh they are the ones that are spreading this COVID nineteen. Uh, B the fact that. Uh, we already have some of our own problems. We don't need to take other people's problems. Yeah. And of course, like, our economy is not doing so well. We need to take care of our own citizens first. Yeah, that's usually it. 
On the refugee side, um, I think what a lot of people don't realize is refugees are treated really badly in Malaysia. Really, really badly. Mm. Um, first things first, they are not given, they are not legally recognized. Mm. I think the only thing we have is a circular from the AG not to go after anybody with a uh, UNHCR card. Yeah, yeah UN cards. Um, and I think there's something from the Homeland Ministry that also says something to the same effect. But um, what will happen is uh, UNHCR... Okay, so again, what is a, a UNHCR card? Mm. So basically, it's a card to kind of say that, okay, you guys are a legitimate yeah. refugee. Yeah, You're not an economic migrant, right? Right. You're someone who's been uh, persecuted. persecuted. Or have your life threatened. Yeah. And so UN is kind of very careful in issuing out these cards and yeah. they take a bit of a... Pro- it is a bit of a process yeah. because, I mean, they don't want to be seen by the government or anyone as just giving out these cards for fun. Right. And so because the process is so long, you have... They'll, what they'll do in the interim is they, they'll give you a letter. Mm. And so um, what happens even, is... Even letters sometimes. Most... Refugees, when they come in, I think all they have is an appointment card. Like if you ask, do you have anything with UN? Like, I have an appointment card. That's all. And after maybe some time, then they get a letter. Then after some more time, and then it can be quite a long time, then they get the UN card. Yeah. So if you don't have a card and you're traveling around, if the police stop you, <clears throat> they will a lot of times whack you up. Mm-hmm. Um, they will, like, for example, if you're driving, a lot of them are lorry drivers. They'll just take your lorry mm-hmm. and then they leave you at the side of the road. Or worse still, they take you to lock up and, you know, they beat you up there. You don't get any representation, you know, and then you just get deported or go to jail. Or they'll ask for a bribe, mm. which yeah. I think might be more common. Yeah. 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 But most of these guys don't have much cash on them. Whatever they can get, I guess. Mm. Mm-hmm. If you have a letter, they tear the letter. That's also quite a common occurrence because there are people who photocopy the letter or print or mm-hmm. manufacture or whatever. Still, I don't think you should be tearing the paper. But I mean, not saying all police officers do this, but substantial amount. And you might even have UNHCR card holders who get harassed. Because even though you have a UNHCR card, it doesn't mean you can get a license, a driving license. Mm. Right. You know, it doesn't mean that you can, you know, do things as other Malaysians can do. Right. And you have to understand, even when they go to the hospital, they are paying the foreign rate. They don't get like, you know, they're not allowed to go to government schools, you know. So it's not like it's easy life. The detention centers are particularly horrible. There are some centers that are legitimately barbaric. So the, the reason why I know this is because uh, when I was working in uh, doing my legal aid in UNHCR, I was in the protection unit. Mm. All of us, uh, chambering students, we get assigned to the protection unit. Protection unit, and there are different units. There's like the economic unit, there's the education unit, which works with dignity. Um, there's, you know, the registration unit, the settlement, resettlement unit, different, different units. Protection unit deals with any issue about safety. So like if a refugee comes in with a complaint of them being harassed by a police officer or if one of them has been kidnapped or hurt. um, Yeah, so I would meet, when I, I would do it once a week and I would meet maybe like 10 refugees a day. And some of their stories are mad. Mm-hmm. I mean, just for context, I met one girl who was, <laughs> they don't even know her age because when they come in, they just arbitrarily give you an age because they don't know when they were born. So her 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 her, her father said she was 18, but I'm so sure she must have been 14 or 15. Mm. She must have been. And she came in, she was with a baby and it was an old man with her. She came in, I interviewed her. 
Um, and you know, she was like breastfeeding the kid and this old man is here and then the, she can't speak English or Bahasa, right? Mm. And so there's a translator, but the man came with her to help her as well. And this man just is the neighbor. He's an old dude, right? And then they explained that this girl's husband, who's just about her age as well, was um, taken, kidnapped. That's what the word she used, kidnapped. Mm. We did our research and we found out that actually, no, we called the police station, he was arrested for stealing cables, mm. right? And so we can't do anything when you've been arrested for mm. a, a crime because that's not within our jurisdiction. Right. Like once you've been arrested for a crime you committed, UN is not going to step in. Yeah. Uh, being detained is another thing, lah, uh, unlawfully detained. So what happened was um, this girl has a baby. She doesn't know English. She doesn't know Bahasa. She has no means of working. Um, and this old man who's really nice, but in other circumstances you would it could have easily been something else. Mm-hmm. You know, it easily could have been a man taking advantage of this really young girl. Um, and yeah, so you, you meet people like this. We, I met another girl. Her mom was just, she says her mom is kidnapped and she had valid reasons for saying it. Her mom, like her clothes were at the house. Her handphone was left in the house. So she knows that the mom didn't just like... Get up and leave. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you would pack your stuff and leave. She said, she just disappeared didn't take anything with her. And so luckily she, her mom's friend took her in. But until today, she can't find her. So she's coming to UN to ask for help to find her mom. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just crazy, crazy stories like that you hear and, and it's pretty mad. Um, what's your, um, are there any experiences that you want to share, especially with dealing with, you know, your students and, and things like that? Like in regards to like... Maybe something that really like hit you like okay this this the state of affairs is really bad mm. has there any ever been an experience where like damn like even for you you never knew it was this bad because that was my common experience like I knew about refugees but I didn't know how bad it was until I started having conversations with them have you had a similar experience I mean I think um, I think some of the experiences that the refugees experience are similar actually to a lot of poor Malaysians as well because even you have Malaysians who, whether they are Malaysian, Malay, Malaysians, Indian Malaysians, Chinese Malaysians, there are a lot of them who are very, very poor, like very, very poor, uh, very difficult living conditions, uh, have difficulty getting jobs. And of course, you even have like stateless Malaysians. And, that's a whole, and we even have some stateless Malaysians in our school because, because they don't have any birth certificates, they don't have ICs, they can't go to government schools. But they've been here all their life, their parents have been here all their life. And, mo- and unfortunately, most of them are... Indian Malaysians. Uh, so yeah, I think there are many par- parallels with uh, the refugees and even other poor. But I think what's unique to refugees is, for example, for me, um, yeah, finding out about like 15 or 16-year-olds who are detained and locked up. And they have nothing. And what, what do we doing? Just walking. That's all. They're just walking. Police stop them. Like, well, who are you? What are you doing? You look like a foreigner. Or you don't have a visa, no passport. Or what do you have? Oh, I have a UN appointment letter. I think that. And then they're detained. They're 15 and 16 and they don't want to do anything at all. They're just detained like that. Um, so yeah, I think to me, those are the kind of things. And I've had teachers, I've not personally been done it, but I've had teachers who've had to go, go to the lockup, go to the police stations and speak on behalf of these students and be like, no, I'm his teacher, he's from his school. Sometimes, and a lot of times, usually we contact UN who then comes in because legally you can't get them out. 
but usually it's just through kind of like uh, UN kind of stepping in and kind of saying like, okay, no, but this 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 boy is, you know, we are processing him and all that. So then usually then the police will let them go. Uh, but even if you're for two or three days, that's really traumatic, mm. you know, and they're not treated very well. Um, so yeah, that's probably the biggest thing for me when it comes to refugees uh, and like how they are here. My students. Mm. I think one of the also tough things to reconcile I mean, like, again, for me personally, um, I think every person should be treated like human beings. Mm. Um, and I get the blowback. You know, a lot of people are like fighting back against what they perceive to be bigotry. You know, the people who are saying, kick out the refugees. So there's a blowback. You know, a lot of people are saying, I'm going to defriend anybody. You know, I'm going to cancel uh, basically anyone who doesn't support refugees. And I, I'm on your side, you know. I definitely think people should be treated like human beings. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to dismiss um, the experiences and stories of these people who are speaking out as well. Because it's not all like rosy, you know. Yeah. It's not all cool and nice. It's not like, oh, these refugees are going to come in. Uh, you're going to help them and everything's going to be great. Yeah. No. A lot of these refugees have serious issues serious problems, maybe even pastors that they have to deal with that manifest in their own lives. More than that, a lot of them, you'll be surprised at how many of them are entitled. Mm -hmm. Right? They expect to be treated well. <laughs> right? And I'm not saying they shouldn't feel that way, but I'm saying that when you meet that, it's going to be jarring because you in your mind expect, oh, I'm helping you, you should be grateful. And then when you meet someone who has an attitude problem, who's not nice, who's rude, whatever, it's going to be very discouraging for you. I feel a lot of these people who are speaking out, you know, great for you, but you have to realize that you don't deal with these communities. You don't stay with them. Like if I've heard many stories of people who actually stay with, uh, within the Rohingya community, for example, and they have a horrible time because they find Rohingyas to be rude and um, uh, very uh, aggressive and not really communal. communal. They are very... Maybe also because of the circumstances of where yeah. they come from. So they're very cliquish. Yeah, I definitely, I really, yeah, I definitely like, even in my school, we have a lot of Rohingyas. And I think, you know, I have a lot of really good students who are like, come, who are, come from really good families and very, very good. But I think, A, I think the experiences, you know, I've had kids who've seen like uncles being shot or having like female relatives being raped and knowing about this or seeing this. And this has happened in their villages because of the soldiers that come into their village. And this is their this is their reality that they experience and it definitely shapes their consciousness or and how they behave. Um, but I think, so yeah, but again, you know, you have a, you have, you have a community that is very un, uh, undereducated, like they don't get a proper education. Rohingyas in Myanmar right now are not considered Myanmar nationals. So they can't get education, it's very difficult to get jobs. And so, I mean, even look at all of us, we're young, we're educated. The only way we are the way we are is because we were educated well, we were exposed, we read, but all of these resources and things that they don't have access to. Mm. Um, at the same time, though, I do agree that, um, and I think these are especially refugees who come from, who in their home country were maybe middle class, even upper class. Yeah. So when they come in here and when they are seeking refuge, uh, seeking asylum, in that sense, uh, sometimes it is difficult to deal with them because they come from a place where they are well-to-do. And you'll be surprised. Some of them do come from their home countries with nice houses, a good life, 
and they come here and it's difficult for them. You want to help them. But they do feel like, why? Uh, they, they, I think it's difficult for them to accept that things may not work out for them or they may have difficulty finding jobs or food. And like you said, I agree, we should help them. But yeah, definitely there are challenges as well. Speaking to the bigger picture though, should we accept them or should we help them or not? I mean, for me, for me personally, and I think a lot of people who do work with them, it's the idea that, yeah, if somebody is struggling and somebody is suffering, you want to elevate that suffering and you want to do something about it. And so that's from like a personal philosophy, personal value or principle. I think even from a practical point of view, helping others, I think it's really important that we recognize that, you know, we are connected. Malaysia is geographically connected to Myanmar, through Thailand, you know. Mm. So it's not like we're an island that we're separated by water or that we are distant from them. Like they are actually a very close country to us. Yeah, our immediate, almost immediate neighbors. Yeah. And the reality is that whatever's going on there will eventually affect us. I mean, mm. even now, things that happen overseas in countries like America or China, or India, they affect us economically. Yeah. But we shouldn't be quick to dismiss the fact that uh, our local neighbors, Singapore, Thailand, <coughs> everything that happens, war, uh, everything that happens around that will eventually affect us one way or another. No matter how much, how high we build our walls or no matter how good our border security is. So, I mean, for these reasons, I think that we do need to do something. Uh, on the flip side, I also think that there is uh, a good data and evidence to show that immigration policy is important. Like having open borders, just allowing anyone and everyone to come in is not the best thing for, for a community or for a country. Uh, if you talk about even economically wise, but even socially. And I think one of the biggest issues, even in countries like Sweden or Germany that have accepted a lot of refugees, New Zealand accepted a lot of refugees, there are issues in that community. And I think it's we shouldn't be overly naive to be like, no, no, no. We should just accept them and not realize that there are challenges. Yeah. Because they come in with um, their own understandings of what culture is, of what hygiene is, of what um, socializing is. And that is difficult. I'm not saying we shouldn't accept them, but I'm saying we need to be aware of these issues and we have to do something. Because if you think that there's no issues, then you won't try and find a solution. Because yeah. you'll be like, why do we have to find a solution? Everything's fine. Yeah. But that's the reality. Uh, it's difficult for them they come here. It, it is difficult for them because it's a new situation for them. But also difficult for the community that live around them, for the country. Uh, so yeah, again, I definitely think that one way forward would be for Malaysia to not just be like, okay, we know it's an issue, but we're going to pretend like it's not there. We just let you kind of like live, do your own thing, but rather take a proactive approach. And the last thing I would say is that just a few, it's important to provide them with shelter and with food because they need that, you know. But I think more than that, if the government were to be able to um, recognize this issue and kind of be like, okay, we see this and want to do something about it, even diplomatically or even politically, to be able to, you know, start reaching out to Myanmar, try, try start doing things in some way to lead to a better situation. Because ultimately, if their home country was more peaceful, they would go back. A lot of my students would be like, yeah, if I could live peacefully and I can get a job and my safety is not threatened, I would be more than happy to go back to my own country because that's my family is there, my community is there, that's when my grandparents grew up, my parents grew up. Um, so yeah, long-term solution, it wouldn't be just to like, okay, let's take all of the Rhingyas because they themselves want to go back. Mm -hmm. So it would be for the government to reach out, to start, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's difficult, but 
I, I believe there must be some way that the Malaysian government can at least start something, talking to the governments. Yeah. Jeremy, do you have a take? Um, well, just to add on to that, I think the government is trying to do something, but it's just not been, it's Let's just talk. not been as successful because of the nature of Aung San Suu Kyi's power sharing with the military. Mm-hmm. So, she took the fall for the Rohingya crisis, but I'm somebody who has. I mean, a, she has said some. Un- she has. Mm-hmm. I agree with that, but I think. I mean, I would be slow to comment as well because again, internally, I don't really, I'm not well read enough to know internally what's going on. I mean, it could be a situation where she's gotten this far. She thinks that, you know, if I, you know, if I placate the the people who don't like me within the administration by saying these mm. pretty nasty things, mm. I'll get to survive a little longer and make a bit of a change. But ultimately, yeah, I think the diplomatic solution has to come. Otherwise, we'll be doing this. Um, I don't think I have a dif- necessarily a very different take mm. yeah I do but think but do you think as a country I mean the economic argument of us being in a not you know if we can't even help ourselves why should we help other people do you do you have a retort to that do you think it's a valid argument I don't think it's a valid argument mm. because even in the case of Germany mm. why they brought refugees in on mass was because it had the capacity to depress wages mm. for the locals this was an active strategy by the government. Mm. So, the fact that... It, but so, in that situation, it's not a question of not having enough. It's a conscious policy of depressing wages, mm. right? Here, on the other hand, here, I don't know, they're just absorbing the jobs that Malaysians wouldn't otherwise get. Mm. It would otherwise take. So, the dirty, dangerous uh, kind of jobs, you know, migrants have taken this up for a long time. So, I not I'm not somebody who buys the economic argument. A lot of this is re, a reaction to that kind of economic alienation. You know, people are, people in Malaysia are being unemployed. It's an easy scapegoat. Yeah. But if the data, I would have a I have a hunch that the data would probably not show that migrants have uh, that kind of economic effect that people think it does. I mean, it does have an effect. It's a good effect. Like ideas has done research to show that a lot of the refugee population, they actually contribute positively to our economy mm. because of the jobs that they take up and how they contribute. Yeah. Sometimes the nature of the way they come in, I mean, and, and it's almost like a psychological thing. You see people come through, cross through borders. Um, we have, I think, a natural tendency to label them as invaders. Mm. And so even though it's not rational, um, like we don't see them as contributors to the economy. We just see them as you're coming to take our resources. I think come and take space. Interesting argument, controversial, but interesting argument would be that, um, of course, I think let me preface this by saying, yeah, definitely, uh, if people were to come in illegally, that's not a good thing. And I mean this to say that that's why we should recognize that there are people who are trying to come in and to make to uh, find ways to do so that they can come in and so we know where they are, we know who they are, so that we are aware, okay, how can we better provide for them? That's what I mean. We should recognize and we should understand them so that we can better provide for them and for the country. But again, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people are like, okay, we, we shouldn't let these refugees come in or they should go back. But then Malaysia a lot of times brings in uh, migrants from many different countries and the many criticisms that we are over, we're bringing in too many, like, mm. like for example, like, more than it's what is necessary. Yeah. So like over the past couple of years, some people would have known that 
we've brought in like hundreds of thousands of Bangladeshi workers, mm. which again contributes to the economy. Nothing wrong with that. But some people criticize them, criticize those moves, saying, "Is it are they really bringing them in because there's a need, or are they bringing them in because they charge them a certain amount of money to mm. come in, and that money goes into people's pockets?" I mean, mm. it's not just that; it's the fact that their labor is so much cheaper. Mm. Yeah. So that so the, the economics of it may be actually the real driver for the immigrant problem, not necessarily the refugee problem. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's going to self-correct. I I mean. I, even when I talk to Bangladeshis now, they tell me that it's not worth it to work here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> even Bangladeshis are telling me that. That's surprising, no? Yeah, yeah. They say, I'm going back to like Bangladesh, Nepal. And go back to Saudi Arabia to make more money. Is it? Yeah, I mean, Malaysia is not the spot it used to be, mm-hmm. you know, mm. in terms in terms of gains. It used to be really worth it now, but nah. Okay. You know, even for Indonesians, I think um, not as worth it as it used to be. Mm. Mm. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Uh, your experiences with... Um, uh, with these different cultures, is the cultural difference really that jarring? Or is it like, you know, that some people say, you know, everybody's human. So how far can the human experience tilt? You know, everyone has a common human experience. But for you, like, because you teach, teach uh, students from so many different backgrounds, do you, can you see the culture at play? I mean, yeah, definitely in terms of... Um there are definitely cultural difference for sure. So because I have students from Somalia, students from uh, Middle East, students from Pakistan. I mean, even in terms of their food culture, how they prepare food, uh, in terms of uh, how they relate to one another, you know, body language, physical contact, all of these things definitely make a difference. And I imagine more so in the community when you live together. Because even for us, we have camps, we stay with our students. That's a challenge because you have students from such different backgrounds. Um, even here, even if you're like a Malaysian, Indian Malaysian or Chinese Malaysian, you still have a lot of common experiences being Malaysian. Uh, but more so when you come from such different countries. Um, I would say though that especially for uh, a lot of the refugees coming from at least Asian countries or neighboring countries, we have a lot in common as well. Uh, so a lot of my students, you know, you'd have that family, they really value family. A lot of them really value their spirituality or their faith. Um, yeah, so things like this, you know. So just before we wrap up, one last thing. I just want to talk about the Haidiqua controversy, kind of controversy. Kind of died out, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, because that's something we I spoke mean, about at the last. I bring it up again. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. For better or for worse. As always, Rumah Roy Cots controversy. Um, cancelled five times over already. <laughs> <laughs> We're just waiting to be cancelled by our imaginary cancellors. Um, you know, Haidiqua posted a very powerful image uh, of um, these refugees packed into uh, what looks like a cage. Mm. Yeah, you know, very powerful image. This is also during the MCO period. Um, And she got a lot of blowback. I think I sympathize with her because the comments were unnecessary. Mm. Uh, You know, just the, you know, the hate is unnecessary. Yeah. You know, it's really unnecessary. But, you know, I think Jeremy told me that she made a mistake as well. Because that photo apparently was not a dated photo. It was a dated photo. It was from 2018. Uh, uh, a commenter pointed that out. She did add an edit to say that this photo is from 2018. Uh, but I think the message is the same. Yeah, but I think that was a little bit misleading. And I think that was a little bit unfair. Mm, yes and no. I mean, the, consider the times that we are in. You know, we there was like MCO, you know, and you post a photo like that. You know, of course you would get a, a visceral reaction. You know, nobody should be 
packed up like that during MCO. It doesn't reflect how it might be now. Right. So in that way, I think it was a bit unfair. Do you have a... It sounds though that... I mean, perhaps something that you kind of learn from your mistakes, but I mean, like if you share a post or we post up stuff, mm. just Google image, right? Mm. So maybe that's what... Maybe that's something that she did. She just look for an image that kind of helps her put a point across and just shares it. But I guess when you are someone that's kind of more well-known and the community, and then your voice is amplified, then you have to make sure that whatever you're saying, it's rather than just a, a Google photo, you have to make sure that it's, yeah, this is something that's happening right now. And she is so, doing good work. She's advocating yeah. for a group that needs to be advocated for. We need to hear uh, these voices. So I give her props for that. I think she's doing a good job. Um, and I really, see, I just, just sort of put it out there, I really sympathize with her because I think, I think she's someone who also, you know, struggles with like anxiety and mm-hmm. things like that because I've been following her. So I understand how intense, you know, sometimes even doing this podcast, we have about maybe a hundred people listening, you know, but we also feel like, you know, uh, could kind be of- less. <laughs> could be, no, I think it's on average about hundred. Okay. So um, you do feel a bit of like pressure to kind of like make, ensure that you don't say anything. A friend was telling us you should fact check stuff. I was like, nah, it's okay. <laughs> we no do need. a postscript. <laughs> post if anybody edit. wants to work at Roy, oh, we, we have one more vacancy. We have one more vacancy. But you're, you're going to have fight uh, Sharon for best intern. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, thank you so much for coming on, Aaron. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome. Um, like when you first came on, it was just me, Jeremy, three mics and one camera, I think. Uh, now we have a little team. <laughs> we have a little crew that's grown. <laughs> we have a little uh, setup. <laughs> little have, is not the way I <laughs> describe this. For the level of podcasting we are doing, our setup <laughs> is pretty intense at this point. Every week we are trying something new. So we hope you come on again soon and yeah, uh, hopefully like the next time you come over, we will have like drones. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have drones taking video aerial footage you'll never hear anything <laughs> it'll just be the drones <laughs> yeah um, maybe before we end Jeremy you want to say anything any wrap ups or? Uh, not really I mean no. the the yeah this refugee thing I think it gets very emotional and I would just caution people to really think about why they're throwing hate at you know people they've never met yeah, yeah. and imagine if you were in the position la. it's always yeah. helpful mm. Um, final say to you, Aaron. Uh, what's your uh, takeaway message for you know everyone to take home with them? I mean, they're already at home, but yeah, they <laughs> all they might be on their way back home. So, I mean, I think for me, I mean, overall, when it comes to like, refugees or education, I think it's always important. Like even for me, like our philosophy of education is to put the student first, so to put that person first, and really try and think like what's best for the other person. Of course, not not forgetting. Um, other people in the surrounding communities or the other citizens in the country but to always try and do what's best for the other person nice great thank you again so much for coming and we are done